Good morning. What we're doing this morning is turning to Psalm 72. And what's interesting about Psalm 72 is that this is a passage devoted to the end times. It's devoted to that time still to come. And so what we're going to be doing this morning is to find a way to connect the now with the not yet. What God is doing currently as he reigns, what God will do when our Jesus Christ, our Lord and as our Savior returns. And so let's blend together now our understanding of the first and second comings as we're exploring these verses together. We're going to try to better understand the way all this fits together. And as I do so, what I want to be able to do with you is to make a few preliminary observations as we go. And the first is that you're going to notice with me that this is a psalm that is described as of Solomon. What we find here at this point is that there is going to be a very extensive, expansive understanding of the reign, the geographical setting of this Davidic king. But when we look very carefully at the reign of Solomon, we realize that the boundaries that Solomon oversaw that he was king of pale in comparison to what's being described here, which means then there's still more to come. The second observation I'd make here at this moment is that everything verb-wise is in the future tense. In the original language, it is basically projecting towards what is still to come. Which means then that there's someone greater than Solomon being described here in these verses. The third observation is that when you get to the last verse, lo and behold, you've come to the end of book two of the Psalms. Book two has been very devoted towards emphasizing the sovereign ruler of the universe as being described as Elohim, which is the generic name for the sovereign one, God. But he will do at the very end something that captures your attention, where all of a sudden he describes him as Lord, L-O-R-D, Yahweh. What he is now saying is that for Jew and Gentile alike, this is a global teaching, a universal teaching that one and all are invited to put faith and trust in the one to come, the one greater than Solomon, whom you and I know as Jesus Christ. Don't overlook the fact that the verbs are in the future tense, not the present He's anticipating something more than what he himself has experienced. I'll read one down through verse 7. We're told this is of Solomon. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people. 
in the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor, the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures, and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like, like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days, may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. He's dealing with the now, but also the not yet. The first, but also the second. And this is very comprehensive. Solomon is not only communicating poetically, He's speaking prophetically. Let's look to our Lord in prayer. Father, what we want to do on this day, we thank you so much for the way in which you're working. Your hand upon what's being described in terms of the construction process. As we do a little shifting of, first, of second service, the end of August, paving the way for a first service crowd to come in weeks later into this same setting. So that as the construction begins, Father, we'll be able to demonstrate by grace extraordinary flexibility. Though flexible with our methods, we'll remain focused upon your word. So Father, thank you for what you're doing what you have done, what you will do. We're here to multiply followers for Jesus Christ. Warm these hearts. Engage these minds. Shape these wills. As again, our Father, we've come here to see Jesus. Him only. Praying these things again now in, in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we Americans, we struggle, don't we, when it comes to relationship with kings, sovereign ones. Isn't that what the 4th of July celebrations were all about? Yet this passage of Scripture describes our relationship to the king, the sovereign one. To illustrate, there was a time in history where there was a pastor in, in Great Britain. His name was Latimer. And evidently, Latimer had a way of teaching God's word that would offend the king of England. To the point where Latimer was sentenced, he was to be executed. There was to be a final standing that was to take place before the king Latimer carried on a conversation with self. You ever done that? Of course, you're consulting the expert, you know. Latimer, Latimer, you're going to speak before the high and mighty king, Henry VIII, who's able, if he thinks, to take your life away. Uh, be careful what you're going to say. But Latimer, 
Latimer. Remember also, you are about to speak before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Be careful that you do not displease him. Solomon is the earthly king, but he's paving the way for the one who is to be still to come, the one we know is the ultimate king, we know is Jesus Christ. Do you see here at the top the superscription? It says it's of Solomon. When Jesus was standing before his opponents, he reminded them that the queen of south, the south, would rise up at the judgment with this generation condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. You can almost sense now at this moment Jesus paused and said, Behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Now, what this psalm is all about is the psalmist, in essence, saying, as much as this is about Solomon, there is someone greater than Solomon being described because everything verb-wise is in the future tense. What I want to do is to explore further the idea of the end times with you this morning. Weeks back, we covered the battle of Gog and Magog. Now what I want to do with you is tie that together with three significant aspects of that reign still to come. There is a now and a not yet aspect to Jesus' reign. Out of verse 1 down through verse 7, the first of the three, that is you and I as we consider Christ's reign in the, in the end of times, this morning, what I want to do is to begin by noting in verses 1 through 7 in particular the distinctive nature of Christ's reign. What's to be expected? What's to be anticipated? What's to be looked for? Check it out. Notice how this begins. Give the king your justice, O God. Now, what fascinates me is that in the Hebrew, justice is in the plural. It carries with the idea of justice is, in other words, an abundance of justice. And this king is about to be endowed with that, to be able to distinguish the right from the wrong. And then he uses what's known as evocative when he says, Oh God. But notice, as we've said all throughout book two of the Psalms, when he uses G-O-D, he is using the Hebrew word Elohim that is used to describe God at the time of creation. God, as it's known to both Jew and Gentile alike, universally and globally in his description of God here. Give the king your justice, O God. But what I want you to now see is that he is now looking ahead toward the one still to come, the one greater than Solomon, when he says, on your righteousness to the royal son. In other words, he's looking beyond self. 
ultimately, this passage of Scripture points towards the ultimate king, the one you and I know as Jesus Christ. Now, not once, not twice, three times you will find in these opening verses this king is identified with and distinguished by righteousness. How does it read? On your righteousness to the royal son, may he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills. How? In righteousness. So this Messiah is to be marked by, distinguished by, righteousness. It happened. It happened in the year 1789, when he was campaigning in the 1960 presidential campaign. John F. Kennedy would occasionally use this story to make a point. It's the story of a Colonel Davenport who was the Speaker of the House of Representatives of Connecticut. And on that day in 1789, the sky of Hartford, Connecticut, darkened so greatly that some of the representatives looking out the windows began to wonder if the end was at hand. If the Lord was returning. Davenport raised his arms. A clamor was there for immediate adjournment. And he said, look, the Messiah is either coming at this moment or is not. If not, there is no cause for adjournment. If it is, if he is, I choose to be found doing my duty. And therefore, I wish that candles be brought in. Now, when you and I consider the second coming of Jesus Christ, we make absolutely certain we keep the candles burning in the darkness of life. We go about doing our work. We're focused upon God's word. We understand the relationship between the first coming and the second coming. And now poetically, but yes, prophetically, three times now, this one who's penning these thoughts identifies this one to come as the righteous one. And then adds these words. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people. Give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. Now, when you examine that very carefully, then you realize he is anticipating this one who is still to come, this one greater, you see, than one we know as Jesus Christ. No, the one who is Jesus Christ. Look very carefully and ponder what I'm about to say here. When you and I examine the course of history, there is a first coming and a second coming to Jesus that can be illustrated by what happened toward the end of World War II. We've used this analogy periodically. D-Day, 
June 6, 1944. That attack guaranteed the eventual destruction of the Nazi powers in Europe. The war, though, continued. The outcome, though, was determined. It wasn't until May 8, 1945, what is known as VE Day, that the results of the forces set in motion 11 months earlier were realized. Bring it to the first and second coming of Jesus Christ. A holy God would not take dominion over a sinful world, so he first sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross to pay the debt for sin, fitting us for God's rule, death, resurrection, the so-called D-Day, the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But the second stage, which will take place when Christ's return, asserts God's rule over the universe, a sort of VE day. So you take first stage, second stage, first coming, second coming, tie it all together, and now you say to yourself, okay, if we have not seen all of this yet, what that means, there is still more to come when the ultimate king, Jesus Christ, returns. Thus, verse 5, may they fear you while the sun endures. And as long as the moon throughout all generations. And now Solomon's got his landscaping team out. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish and peace abound. Till the moon be no more. He's saying that this kingdom, this that's being described here, and this king who is being illustrated here is eternal. You can't keep him down. There's more to come. Maybe that's why that thief on the cross, when he might be gazing over the placard placed above Jesus' head, where it seems as though death was imminent would then say, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. It's almost as if he's anticipating resurrection. He's anticipating something more. It's as if the wisdom of Solomon of Psalm 72 is now coursing, coursing his veins. And Jesus responds to this remarkable statement of faith with these words, Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And you and I ponder that because if you are ever playing chess, you and I know that as soon as the game is over, the king, the queen, the bishops, the knights, and the common soldiers, the pawns, when the game's over, they all tumble back into the bag without rank. And so it is with the kings of this world. But you see, there is one. There is one who emerged from that bag three days later. There's more to be done. 
Now, as Solomon is looking at what is being penned here, as he reflects upon his words, he knows that in his kingdom there is something more still to be done that he himself has not experienced. So he's anticipating that one described in verse 1, the royal son. It leads us then to this second aspect of the end times. As you and I, as we consider Christ's reign in the end times, 1 through 7, we noted the distinctive nature of Christ's reign. But now here in verses 8 through 14, notice furthermore with me the extensive scope of Christ's reign. I want you to be able to see what Solomon now is describing in terms of the boundaries of this kingdom. Verse 8. May he have dominion from sea to sea. You start with the Mediterranean, which, which is right there at the, at the front door of Israel. It stands outward. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Ends of the earth, the river, that's the river Euphrates. What he's telling us at this point, then, is that this kingdom that's being described here is a global kingdom. It extends far beyond the boundaries that have been, that have been experienced by Solomon at this very moment. And that is why we see such extraordinary disputes occurring all the time in Israel with regard to the land. Gaza. Golan Heights. You see, West Bank, such a small country, yet such disputed land, because God is going to extend from that setting of Jerusalem outward to have a global impact through his kingdom strategy. You're looking very carefully now at the end times. You're tying it to what we covered weeks ago with regard to Gog and Mega. You're seeing the distinctive nature of Christ's reign in 1 through 7, the threefold emphasis upon, upon the Messiah. Furthermore, what you're seeing here is the extensive scope of Christ's reign. May the desert tribes by, bow down before him. Get this. Where have you come across, where have you spotted this before? And his enemies lick the dust and say, Gary, I get it. Back in the Genesis 3 account, when God was making a statement to the evil one, because you have done this curse above, are you, above all the livestock and above all beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go and Dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Very same terminology. What God is saying is that in opposition to his messianic plan, they're going to bite the dust. You're watching a baseball game. Of course you are. And you see that there is this batter who's crowding the plate. The pitcher, let's say it's a Justin Verlander of sorts. He pitches high and inside. What happens? The batter 
bites the dust, if you will, goes down. Why? Because he's crowding the plate. And Verlander wants to access the entirety of his plan. What God now is doing at this point is he's saying that pertaining to those that would stand in opposition to his global strategy, including the boundaries that he's setting, what he's telling us, that is in keeping with the evil one of Genesis chapter 3, they bite the dust. They find that they simply cannot achieve their goals. Think Golan Heights. Think Gaza Strip. Think West Bank. Continue on. May the kings of Tarshish, you see, and the, of the coastlands render to him tribute. And may the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. Now, again, what I want to do is tie first coming, second coming together. First coming. Matthew chapter 2. What happened? Magi from the east came doing what? Bearing gifts. What that was in the first coming was a major installment of God's messianic plan that will be completely and ultimately fulfilled in the second coming. When globally, then, what you will find is that the leaders of the nations emerge, converge upon Jerusalem where Jesus Christ is positioned. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. And at this point then, what you're doing is you are seeing the significance of the boundaries of this reign, the extensive scope of the second coming of Jesus Christ, Everything described poetically is also offered prophetically because the verbs are all in the future tense in the Hebrew language. We're walking the streets of New York City, you and me. In New York City's archives is the oldest map of that great city. You know what? Colonial times, city planners envisioned this city and the new world, calling it New York because there's a York in Great Britain. And they divided the city into broad avenues, which crisscrossed the city, used a consecutive numbering system. Starting with First Street, they went deep into the unsettled countryside. Picture New York City. How far? They could see no further than 19th Street. They figured no city could grow that far. And to make that point clear, they drove the final stakes, marked off a final trail, completed the map, and called the last trail Boundary Avenue, quote-unquote. But folks, Boundary Avenue is now part of New York City's inner city. The original numbering system has been expanded to cover at least 284th Street. The vision of New York's city planners, yeah, the scope of their vision was just too small. But I want you to see here the scope of God's vision. You pull together the distinctive nature of Christ's reign, the threefold emphasis upon righteousness in one through seven. 
tied together to the extensive scope of Christ's reign. You see the geography. And now you're not surprised by the news reports of the continual tensions emerging on the Gaza Strip, on the Golan Heights, on the West Bank. But now you bring it home once again because you're up to verse, you're up to verse 12, aren't you? And you're saying that with regard to Jesus Christ, he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy from oppression and violence. He redeems their life, precious is their blood in his sight. In other words, all those who have died a martyr's death, precious is their blood in his sight because he would come to die for their sins, you see. And now you're pulling together the entire scope of the advents of Jesus Christ. First and second, the distinctive nature of the reign, the extensive scope of the reign, as you and I are exploring the now but also the not yet aspects of Jesus Christ, Savior, Lord. You know, Psalm 72 was the basis for a song to be penned. Jesus shall reign where'er the sun does his successive journeys run. His kingdom spread from shore to shore till moon shall wax and wane no more. That's the not yet. But we also sing, King of my life, I crown thee now. Thine shall the glory be. That's the now. So we live with the tension of Christ's reign between the now and the not yet aspects. The first and the second coming. And you live in a healthy way with such tension as you explain what's happening right now in the Middle East. And the implications and applications globally for what is still to come as you ponder the end times. And you inch your way then to the third and the final aspect that I see here. What I describe in verses 15 through 20 is the future blessings of Christ's reign. Check out how it begins to read. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. And you say, gold of Sheba? Sheba, Sheba, where did I find that? Good question. But if you go to 1 Kings, what you will find is that the queen of Sheba made her way to spend time with Solomon, bringing gifts, and in the process, seeking his wisdom. And when you are pursuing Jesus Christ, you're gaining greater wisdom. Long may he live, may gold of Sheba be given to him, may prayer be made for him continually, blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land on the tops of the mountains, may it wave, may it, its fruit be like Lebanon, and may people blossom in the cities like the grass on the field. He's looking toward that future rain. There's a present rain, that's the now. But the future aspect, the not yet, D-Day, V-E-Day, what does he do at this point? He ends book two, get this, with a doxology. So good. 
He ends book two with the way he began book one. He began book one with the whole idea of the blessings of God. And now here we end at book two with these words. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. Global now. All nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. What fascinates is that that word wondrous was the word to describe the miraculous workings in the book of Exodus when God was working through Moses and Aaron to get the attention of the Egyptian people. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. But did you spot something there, what I just read? Sure you did. You didn't read, blessed be simply the God of Israel. And now read, blessed be the Lord. The God of Israel. That is the relational name for God. The covenantal name for God. And now what he's saying to you and to me, to Jew and Gentile, to people of past, people in the present, people still to come, this gospel is for you. He is a relational God in which you put your faith and trust in that one from the line of David through, through Solomon onward. You're able then to be able to embrace what Solomon himself said. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. And you nod your head, of course. Everything, everything here is in the future tense. And you're not surprised. Latimer, Latimer, going to speak before the high and mighty king, Henry VIII. He's able to take your life away. Be careful what you're going to say. But Latimer, Latimer, remember that you are also about to speak before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Take heed not to displease him. He reigns. First coming, second coming, poetically, prophetically, all wrapped up in these verses. Let's stand together. So, Father, we see the ultimate king here being described. Solomon is projecting ahead. And then amazingly, though he's speaking to a global audience, ends by referencing you as Lord, Yahweh, the relational one. So, Father, I pray for anyone who comes religiously curious but lacks a relationship with you. Salvation comes exclusively by putting faith and trust in the one who died for our sins, who had the placard, King of the Jews over his head.
and then three days later raised from the grave so that you, the sovereign God, would say, this is an eternal kingdom. And we place our faith in Jesus. We have eternal life with our eternal king. We give you praise. All of it. In Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.